Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined in studio, in the flesh, by Zach Davis. Yeah, it feels so good to be back here. I'm glad that we worked our way up to a full show. It was nice to have just the interview last week. But we've got a lot of great stuff coming at you today. Some big news this week, which I'm sure you've already seen some headlines by the time this hits your feed. But we are reacting in real time, so you're getting some uh, some maybe unvarnished reactions from us to some stuff. And like we're uh, debuting uh, some new some new uh, segments at the end, right? Yeah, so stick around after the interview for, for a surprise. But before that, who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to Jeremy Tate. Jeremy is the founder and chief executive officer of the Classic Learning Test and an advocate for all things classical. Yeah, we figured this would be a good back to school episode, um, looking at really the way that school kind of fails us to make us think. At least that's what a lot of people are, you know, coming around to. They, you know, we talk. There's a lot of talk about schools just kind of warehousing kids in particular, and you know, what is education really for? And how is that that disconnect between what's happening in school and what you know what education should be as as formation of per- people of of knowledge and virtue? How is that translating into like our polarized political moment? So super super interesting. Not not too up in the clouds. It's it's practical. Don't worry. Right, and I know I recognize a lot of people are not maybe going to school anymore who listen to this, and so we do actually look at okay, what how do we how do we apply some lessons from the classics? Uh, to our everyday life. So stick around. That's coming up, our interview with Jeremy Tate. But before we get to our conversation, what are we drinking this week, Zach? Right. And we should say for any new listeners, like, so part of the gimmick of the show is we're trying it's to- It's not a gimmick. <laughs> no, it's true. It's we... integral to the show. It's true. Um, we're, we're trying to have replicate conversations about faith between friends. And so we try to do that uh, over drinks to, you know, lower the stakes a little bit, uh, bring it down to earth. Every week we do have a drink, and our producer Maggie has come up with some great uh, recipes for us. Uh, she's been getting into cocktails in her in her as a quarantine hobby from the last past year. So she has constructed for us a recipe: Kim's grapefruit gin. And we did our best. We couldn't find any grapefruits on in, the sh- in, in Midtown Manhattan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the, the the fruit vendor did provide us with an orange, so we swapped the orange for the grapefruit. But we're using uh, one of my favorite liqueurs, which is. Uh, Saint Germain. I never know how to say that because, like, the real way also sounds maybe pretentious. Um, Germain. Yeah, Saint Germain. Um, so I'm never not sh- sure what context to go with. But we're using elderflower liqueur and some gin and some orange juice, which is quite tasty. So, yep. cheers to a new season. Cheers. <laughs> good. Good. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What are we talking about, Zach? So Pope Francis got on a plane. Which is always the biggest news story whenever he goes abroad is not what happens in country, but on the way back. All right. So let's first say, where where was he? Yes. He made a brief trip to Hungary and then flew over to Slovakia for a for a trip there for the International Eucharistic Congress and then some other stops along the way. Yeah, and this is uh, significant anytime the Pope goes somewhere, but this is his first real, I mean, papal trip outside since the pandemic. Yeah. Iraq, yeah. Iraq. 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 Yeah. So it's that was a sort of a one-off and there's been a long time since then. And this is also his first papal trip since his uh, surgery. Yeah, there was a lot of speculation of whether this it was pretty. He always has a very grueling schedule. And he, he had his his surgery on July 4th and was still kind of in recovery mode. But by all accounts, he was in strong form. He uh, was certainly in strong form on the press conference on the plane back. We're talking about that because this is this is what made headlines. Francis was asked by America Magazine's own Vatican correspondent, Gerard O'Connell, about what he thought on the debate about 
pro-choice politicians, communion, uh, the president and other people based on, you know, whether they should be denied communion on the grounds of their stance on abortion. Right. And the Pope's first response was that he has never refused Eucharist to anyone ever. So Yeah. He actually had a very funny story where he was like, I went into a nursing home one time and I said, who wants communion? And everyone raised their hand. And right as like uh, a woman took the host and consumed it, uh, she said, thanks so much. I'm Jewish. (laughs) And he said, oh, I gave you a Jewish one too, (laughs) Um, which I thought was uh, very funny, very (laughs) playful. Um, But it went into a pretty serious answer about this question. Yeah. Yes. So first revealed his own you know, his own stance on denying communion, which is that he doesn't do it. Then he said, first off, abortion is murder or homicide, he said exactly. So he did not want to, you know, mince words there. This is is not about him not being concerned about the issue of abortion. Yeah, he he was pretty strong about that point, which, you know, is not a a shock, right? He said things like this before. Um, So the the Pope is like definitely consistently pro-life on this issue and uh, against abortion. But then he got into the question of whether or not, you know, how to deal with politicians who don't maybe hold this view. Right. And he specifically said that he wasn't commenting directly on the situation in the United States because he didn't know about enough about the situation, which is a good reminder that, you know, the Catholic Church does not revolve around the United States. And what we think is like the most pressing concern (laughs) is is not, you know, the pope's top priority. Right. But it is the top priority of a lot of bishops in this country is, you know, how to address this question. And, you know, he said, you know, what's the theology on the Eucharist? It's what he said before, right? It's not a prize for the perfect. It's it's medicine for, for sinners. I'm paraphrasing. He says every time in history that bishops have not confronted the problem as pastors, they've taken sides politically. And that has basically gone poorly every time. Um, so, the, you know, outside of the abortion issue, anytime that there's like a, a some some church teaching that has the stakes raised so much that bishops feel like they need to take political sides in it, it typically goes poorly, which I thought was an interesting observation. Because I think a lot of the complaints you're seeing in the church today is that Sometimes it's funny. It's sometimes that the bishops are not political enough on some issues, or it's that they're pretty myopic about you know this issue of abortion, and they're so political on that and not political on other things. And this is something you know Pope Francis knows about when he was when he was an archbishop in Argentina, or when he was actually it was when he was a Jesuit provincial in Argentina. It was during you know a military dictatorship, and he had to decide how to interact with that government, which was, you know, very far from ideal. <laughs> but um, he, this is, and it just seems like in other countries, there's not this same focus on like, can the church taint itself by associating with politicians that don't hold positions that are consistent? Right. It is It is a uniquely American phenomenon, especially in, in today's church, um, which I think, you know, I... Drawing lessons out of this, one of the things that the Pope is clearly trying to communicate is that the church in today's world, we have to be pastors and not politicians. And so, you know, what is a what do shepherds do? They don't go around. He says, be a shepherd, not going around condemning. They must be a shepherd in God's style, which is closeness, compassion and tenderness, which is not a clear cut answer. Right. That's not like here's how you do it. It's messy, but like honestly, the business of Jesus is messy, and trying to figure out how to address this, admittedly, is a difficult one. But the Pope is saying that I, I think, as I read this, the approach that the Church of the United States is trying to take with this, you know, proposed document on the Eucharist and politicians and abortion is 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 not the right one, as, as I read it. Yeah, no, I was talking to our colleague Sam Sawyer, Father Sam Sawyer about the about the Pope's statements and he made an interesting point and in that kind of what the attitude uh among some bishops in the U- US church is it seems like there's just like a lack of trust in bishops as pastors because when yeah as you said Pope Francis is not telling them what to do as pastors he's telling them to be pastors and it seems like some bishops are nervous about that because when there's not a clear rule People can do different, make different decisions. And so there's just like this fundamental lack of trust that put in that position, being pastoral will, you know, equate to confusing people about doctrine or whatever. Which I, I, I 
a lot of people have said this, but I've also been pretty on the record. I don't think anyone is confused about what the church teaching is on, on abortion. You know, the Pope made it clear again today as he prefaced these remarks with what the church teaches on abortion. And so I, I you know, this is going to inspire a thousand hot takes, I think. Um, these are our sort of initial reactions to it. But there, we, we do want to highlight one other thing. He, he talked a lot about a lot of things on the plane um, that it's worth getting into. Was but not we, holding back. No. And another thing he brought up, someone asked about uh, vaccines and COVID and vaccines, vaccine skepticism. And pretty bluntly, he, you know, he says, even in the College of Cardinals, there are some anti-vaxxers. And one of them, poor man, was hospitalized with the virus. But life is ironic. And that was pretty clearly a reference to Cardinal Raymond Burke, who has expressed skepticism about the vaccines and then unfortunately contracted COVID and was in the hospital and actually on a ventilator yeah, really for serious. a number of days. Um, so, you know, what I did think was interesting about, you know, he he talked about this more and he says, you know, the, you know, within the Vatican, most people are vaccinated except for a few. And he said, you know, we're really looking at the problem on how to help them. So this wasn't, you know, I think it's tempting for some people sometimes uh, to get frustrated with people who don't want the vaccine to a point where you're just so angry yeah. that you can't do it. And, you know, Greg Boyle talked about this last on last week's show. Like you, you get so consumed by the anger that you can't do anything about it. No, and it's I mean, it's you know, he's taking the exact same approach that he said bishops should take to politicians is is getting close to these people, having compassion for these people. And that's the route to pushing them towards towards doing what Pope Francis has said is an act of love, getting the vaccine. Right. And, you know, I, I, I will just say I've appreciated very much Francis's, you know, being, you know, on this 100 um, percent. I I know there we've talked about on the show. He early on in the pandemic was not great about wearing a mask. Um, and setting an example there. But he has been fully on board with pushing this vaccine and pushing Catholics to get it and talk about the, you know, uh, it being an act of love and, and a moral thing to do. So thank you, Pope Francis, for that. Uh, there's going to be a lot of coverage on these. This It's one story with many dimensions, but there, we're, we're going to be covering it all at americamagazine.org this week and next. So make sure you're checking that out. Um, I'm sure that I know that Inside the Vatican is going to be unpacking everything from the Pope's uh, trip to Hungary and Slovakia. So you can check that out this week. It's in your feed and you can read us more at americamagazine.org. Yeah. And this the whole question and answer session is worth reading and unpacking. And America is publishing the entire transcript. So you can check that out. We'll include it in the show notes. Joining us from Annapolis is Jeremy Tate. Jeremy is the founder and chief executive officer of the Classic Learning Test. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jeremy. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. We thought this was a great conversation uh, for the start of the school year. We're going to start with a kind of maybe it sounds like a basic question, but I imagine people have different answers to it. How do you define the classics? What's what's included and who gets to decide? That's a really great question. Uh, and I've been in the room with some of the most thoughtful people, I think some of the, the pioneers of the whole classical movement, uh, and they even have a hard time defining exactly what is classical and what isn't classical. But I, I think something everybody can relate to uh, are the stories that kind of never die. You know, So if you think about even stories like Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella, we don't even know exactly where these stories come from, uh, but for some reason they were worthy uh, of being passed down from one generation to the next, uh, whereas other stories kind of got lost to time. Got it. So what are like th top five? Top five? Uh, I think you definitely have to put Aesop's Fables in there. Uh, I think you got to put the Iliad and the Odyssey in there. I mean, I think these are stories that speak to kind of the, the most basic and true universal things about what it means to be uh, a human. And I think you'd also put in some more Modern stuff. I'm a big fan of uh, Ben Franklin. Recently reread his his autobiography, which was great, and that gets me to four. Maybe Frederick Douglass' autobiography as well. Okay, all right. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about uh, some of the different approaches that you and your group have taken. And I and I really want to get to sort of the the more fundamental, not the like practical necessarily approaches to education and what that's about. Yeah. So classic learning test. I mean, I, I always give the uh, 
you know, disclaimer that it may sound like the most boring thing you could ever talk about. Like who wants to talk about a standardized test? That sounds really painful, but yeah, I put that behind me. I'm not going to lie. I I, I really didn't think I would be doing that anymore. That's right. But, but standardized testing plays this really powerful role in all of American education, especially secondary education. And what's what's happened, especially over the past half century is that the tests end up kind of dictating, driving what happens in the classroom. And so the idea with CLT was that if you put timeless, beautiful texts that are really worthy uh, of a student's time and attention, that it could help to kind of drive those texts back into the classroom as well. Um, And so that's really what we're doing in kind of launching a competitor uh, to SAT and ACT. Instead of students reading kind of meaningless passages about, you know, maybe maybe penguins in, in Antarctica or the history of mustard or whatever it may be, you know, they're reading Frederick Douglass or Flannery O'Connor. They're reading Nietzsche or Darwin, Thomas Aquinas we've had on our test, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, these kind of texts that you would never, ever see on an SAT or ACT that I think are really, really worthy uh, of students digging into. So you wrote an op-ed with Cornell West a few months ago uh, in response to Howard University deciding to abolish their classics department. And in, in that article, you make a distinction between like schooling and education. Could you draw that out for us and, and kind of give us a sense of what, what you think is wrong maybe in the way we approach education in the United States right now? Yeah. And first thing, I mean, one of the great, greatest joys of this whole uh, journey over six years uh, has been the past really year or so getting to know Cornell West. Uh, you know, we just interviewed him for a podcast and then he took a lot of interest in what we were doing and the potential to have a really big impact. And so he joined our board of academic advisors. And what's interesting to me is, you know, we've got people on our board of academic advisors that really span the entire political spectrum, but that agree that education is fundamentally about human formation and not about kind of these material utilitarian gains, right? And so when I was a teacher, I would ask my students, like, what's the point of school? You know, why are we even here? And in the public schools I worked at, and this is true in the inner cities I worked at and true in the the affluent uh, suburban school, students would almost always say something kind of like, you know, we're here to get a better job. Uh, It was entirely a stepping stone for a high paying job. So then you could just, I guess, have more stuff. You know, Where, where's that uh, and come would, from? Parents? I think it comes from parents. But, you know, I, I remember thinking, man, these students say this like we know, Mr. Tate, we know this already. We're here to get a better job, uh, you know. And so I, I think it's it's pushed by parents, but also just through mainstream K-12 as well. I mean, I remember when I was in inner city New York, we had a guest speaker come and his whole speech was, you know, if you want to have a nice car, you want to have a nice place, you know, then then school's the way to do that. Uh, rather than uh, there's inherent value in knowledge and learning itself. And I think that's what classical education does is refocuses education on exploring the world, cultivating wonder, uh, and then the the, the development, uh, cultivation of virtue in young people. That's kind of a tough sell in today's world, no? It kind of is. But at the same time, I, I think that these young graduates are, are really incredible. And I, I think, you know, CLT is a startup. We've got, you know, 21 full-time employees. A quarter of them went to St. John's College in Annapolis. Now that's a great books college. They don't even have majors there. They're doing a deep dive into the great books. And so how does that translate into being a good employee? Well, what happens is that they they learn how to become really good listeners. They learn how to think outside the box. They have kind of honed these characteristics that are pretty rare in today's world. And so I think it's a paradox, right? That classical education is in no way intended to make like highly employable people. But in some ways, I think what they actually end up doing by not focusing on college and career readiness is they actually make people who are far more employable than I think maybe a lot of the K-12 mainstream schools are doing. So yeah, I was going to ask about that because I think a lot of people would be like, you know, it's you have to be from maybe a pretty privileged background to be able to afford to major in the classics and and maybe folks from working class backgrounds, you know, rightly feel like they need to get a degree that's practical and leads to a job. I certainly got a lot of skepticism from uh, some people in my family. I remember distinctly a girl I was dating in college, her mother found out that I was a philosophy and theology major, but not going to be a priest and was just like very alarmed that I was even considering dating her daughter. That's awesome. It was not awesome at the time. It was very scary. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so what do you think's wrong about, about that line of argument? Yeah. You know, you look at, at the number of, of 
high CEOs, people who start companies who think outside the box, uh, who have a, f- a formation, academic formation and something like philosophy. And so it's, it's hard to exactly say, well, if you, if you go major in philosophy, you're going to start a great company. That's not, it's definitely not the case, but it does seem to, again, kind of foster something that, uh, maybe just your typical business major, uh, isn't getting. Yeah. I remember, um, philosophy professor told me, something along the lines of, you know, they can teach you all the answers in business school, but they don't tell you that the questions change, hmm. which has always stuck with me. Um, is like a really, and that's, you know, how I made my first million with my <laughs> philosophy degree. Um, where do you think though, that we're supposed to learn? Like At the same time, I also feel like school right now is, you know, promising all this like STEM and career readiness. And at the same time, not at all preparing me for real life, even if I'm following that track. Like, I still don't know, like, where I'm supposed to learn about how to navigate health insurance or, um, like, you know, what the right path for, like, housing is supposed to be for my life. And so if it's not in school, where are we supposed to learn some of these things? Yeah, it's interesting. But you think about, you know, you hear these stories about people from, from you know, Napa Valley and these high, high paid, you know, tech entrepreneurs, and they have all of their kids like unplugged. And they're not using all of these devices that like we all are growing up on. And they're doing a very organic, like wooden toys, and they're learning Latin. And they're doing these things you would never think that like the tech giants would have their own kids doing. But I, I think we're in a world right now where business uh, is changing so rapidly, the skills needed are changing so rapidly that to go into to specialize uh, in a particular major in college or to learn some kind of a craft is very possibly going to be outdated. You know, by the time that you graduate anyway. And so, but what you can get there instead is again, you you can have these cultivation of these softer uh, skills. And I, again, I think I think of the St. John's College college graduates that we have here. You you get that through long work of, of diving deeply into to great texts into to complicated ideas. You know, uh, and that I think it creates a, a very different person. Uh, that the world is, I, I think, in very uh, high demand for right now. I'm curious, you you have six kids. How are you approaching their education? Yes. Well, I put in six kids because we have a, a baby due kind of any day. So I thought oh, maybe wow. when this podcast <laughs> drops, we'll have a six kid. But we actually don't at the moment. So my wife is due kind of really any day. Um, yeah, we've done everything. We've had them in public school. We've had them. They're currently three of the six are, are soon to be six. Uh, are in classical Catholic schools. So it's a, a Catholic school, but it's kind of big on the classical tradition. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of different options. I mean, the way COVID has ushered in just crazy disruption uh, in, in K-12 and, and in higher ed right now is kind of mind-blogging, like the, 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 sp- the pace of it. I was tweeting just the other day, I've got a, a dear friend who uh, is on our board at CLT. She founded uh, National Black Home Educators uh, in 2001. I talked to her on the phone last week. And they had three x growth in one year uh, of the families that, that they're serving, you know. And so what she's saying, and I think sometimes we do think of the the classical renewal movement as maybe something that's uh, the, you know white affluent kids are the beneficiaries of. Uh, but I, I learned this as well, and I saw this in a Washington Post article: for Asian families, Black families, and Latino families are all more likely to homeschool than white families. White families actually come in fourth. So it's it's really p- powerful that this is a a movement that's kind of sweeping American education. Uh, a lot of the homeschooling movement, people are opting for curriculum options that if they're not classical or at least kind of more, I think of classical as a spectrum, it's not necessarily classical or not, but in a direction towards tradition and kind of timeless text. Uh, so it's an exciting time, I think, to be in education right now. Does that have to happen outside of the public school system, do you think? Because I... I would probably subscribe to an argument that like if you want these things incorporated into your society, you sort of have to like work with the existing public structures that are there instead of this like piecemeal like retreat from everybody um, and kind of like everybody doing their own sort of school at they're all individual school at home. Yeah, it's it's such a socialization. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a thoughtful question. I mean, uh, th- there are there is a big withdrawal from, but there's also a big renewal movement within the public school system as well. And so you've got a ton of charter schools. I go to Florida a lot, uh, Arizona, uh, where you have charter schools, many of them classical charter schools, 
that are embracing a classical model. Many of these schools are predominantly minority students as well. And the crazy thing is that they have waiting lists that are sometimes two or three times as big as the entire enrollment of the school itself. So my, my hope is that America can get on board with where a lot of progressive European countries have been for a long time. The Netherlands has been doing this for over a century, where they have a school choice model that puts parents in the driver's seat of being able to send their kids where they want to send them. Uh, I think that there's a movement happening in the U.S. right now to make that uh, hopefully the case. It's happening uh, slowly, at least. And when that happens, I think parents, given different options, are going to choose for the tried and the true uh, options that have been uh, around for a long time and are producing some of the very best results. So we've talked about one of the challenges facing classics education today, which is kind of like the the economic side of, you know, people feeling like they can't afford to to dive into these texts and need to do something practical. But there's also a more, I think, fundamental criticism of, of the classics that's arisen, and at least I've become more aware of it in recent years. And that's, you know, it's, you know, the idea that this is, you know, dead white guys, it's that has a history that's complicit in racism and slavery and, you know, has been used as like a way of defining and weaponizing whiteness. So I'm curious to get your get your uh, take on 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 those criticisms. Yeah. For example, when you were talking earlier and said, you know, it's the stories that didn't die off, you know, and there's a voice in my head that says, well, well, someone killed other stories. Right. It's not just that these there was like a, a natural selection of the best. And so there's always been like a political and as Ashley said, some people would argue a racial dynamic and who gets to define what. Yeah. So I think a couple of people I'd like to just just talk about and hopefully I can send this podcast their way. So the, the president, the newly elected president of our academic board at CLT, Angel Parham Adams, she's a professor at the University of Virginia. She's a black woman who's also homeschooled her own children in the Christian tradition. And I think she has worked closely with another member of our board, Dr. Anika Prather. So when we talked earlier about the the story that Cornell and I broke about Howard canceling the classics, well, she kind of grew up uh, at Howard University and she was teaching in the classics department at Howard. And one of the things Anika has done, which is really incredible, is, is she has tracked the, the references and the academic formation of the, the black intellectual giants uh, throughout history uh, and the way that these authors were, were so formative on them and then how much they're in dialogue with them uh, as well. So one of the things we do at CLT, we, we read out loud together every day as a company. We read a year ago, The Souls of Black Folk uh, out loud together uh, as a company. You think about what Du Bois says there, you know, about the classics, you know, that, that he he sits with Shakespeare uh, and he winces not, you know, that Du Bois's understanding of the classics wasn't that they were, you know, pushing groups outside, uh, but then instead we're, we're drawing drawing people up into this tradition as well. So kind of kind of anything that we would take from, uh, you know, colonial period, there's a lot of things that are, are tainted from it. I hear this argument a lot that, you know, classical education, it's, it's connected to elitism and, and snobbery, but it seems like you could make that educate that, that same argument about, you know, against a BMW or any kind of a great vehicle of like, this is, this is a really nice thing that, that formerly costed a lot of money. Therefore, it's not for the masses. This is the first time in human history that we've been able to take a truly liberal education and offer it to all people. You know, formerly it said, you know, this education and kind of useless things, the study of philosophy, whatnot, that this was only for the most affluent people. But I think now we're at a, at a, at a different point in time where this kind of, kind of learning can be part of uh, education, you know, for all people rather than just those, uh, the most affluent. But, you know, there is a lot of work to, to be done. I don't deny for uh, a minute that, you know, some of these texts uh, have been used, you know, especially take writings from, from Aristotle and others, Jefferson as well, who I, I actually love and think there's a ton of value to studying Jefferson, perpetuated systems uh, of oppression. I do think it's a big mistake, though, to to cancel or to try to remove uh, thinkers that have been kind of part of this conversation for, in some cases, for well over 2,000 years. You know, it's interesting, too, because it's not just historical figures that have problems. It, it, as much as I think we want to like, you know, study these things in isolation away from like the partisanship of today, but we've got examples of, you know, people who rallied in Charlottesville, like making claim to the Greek philosophical tradition, people on January 6th who are trying to claim, you know, this idea of whiteness that's founded in there. And so is there is there an argument that these need to be studied more because you've got groups competing over the claim to this heritage? 
Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think that there is there's a, a misuse for sure. But I think a lot of the ideas that are first developed and the clarity around them are, are gifts really to all, all people. And so I, I think to take some of these most timeless texts, most timeless ideas, uh, and to say, you know what, we're not going to have, you know, students in minority schools read these, these kinds of texts because these texts have been used at times to oppress. I think ultimately we'll put those same students uh, at, at a disadvantage. And, you know, I wanted to make clear on a distinction as well. There's a really big difference between a classics department at a university and then a, a classical school. And I think the main difference with a classical school in contrast with, I think, a mainstream K-12 uh, is, again, this emphasis primarily on the cultivation of virtue. When I say virtue, what I'm primarily referring to is at least the four cardinal virtues. So I think any flourishing society needs to have some idea of like what are high high internal goods and virtues that people can aspire to. Four cardinal virtues, prudence, fortitude, justice, and temperance. I, I taught for 10 years in the public school arena, and there was I, I, maybe a little bit for, for justice, there was a focus, but certainly not for anything like fortitude or temperance or prudence. And that was the main work of education throughout most of human history. And that is really across cultures. You know, when you look at C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, he makes this case that if you look at education in any sphere, whatever you say, Native American cultures or whatever, how are they teaching their children? How are they teaching the next generation? They were passing on the customs, the traditions, the practices, the beliefs, the worship, the, the ability to make good judgment, judgments that would impact the whole community in a beneficial way. So much of that has been removed from education that I think what we currently call education, mainstream K-12, looks very different from almost any what any generation really considered a good education before us. This isn't K-12, but uh, the last trip I made before the pandemic was a reporting trip to Wyoming Catholic College, which very much, I think, would fall in this category of classical education. Um, and it was really striking. I, I went to the University of Virginia, had a wonderful experience Got an economics degree, like a, a modern pagan. Oh, very good. <laughs> um, but no, it, it was markedly like different. Like you would sit down at lunch and people would be just dis actually discussing Plato. And I was like, that is not what I was <laughs> talking about at UVA. Um, so I, you, I think you, you've visited there. I'm curious to get your, your take on what they're doing. I did. Well, my first take on visiting Wyoming Catholic was that it was it was really weird and refreshing to talk to like young people who were not plugged into a device. And I didn't realize it until I got out there, but I go to so many schools, so many colleges and sit down in classes, but typically if a kid's not actually on the device, at least a few times it beeps or something and they fool around with it. And they were so unplugged and therefore they were just like so present, I thought with each other. And it seems like a really extreme thing to do. Like they basically are just like, if you're coming here, you're giving us your cell phone for the whole four years. Like it's pretty wild. But the way that they had relationships with each other is just really different. And so I, I think that there's a lot to learn, you know, from from what a school like Wyoming Catholic is doing. Mm. You say they are like, as you said, they have a no cell phone policy. So they're literally unplugged. But like, is there also a, you know, tendency to kind of get unplugged from what's happening in the current world when you're so immersed in these ancient texts? Or do you see a way where you can, yeah? Yeah, I, I think for a time, for a chapter, for a season of life, I think that it could be a good thing, actually. I, I think the monastic tradition, I think, reflects this idea that I think a total retreat, like forever, is I don't think is a good thing and it's not a blessing to anybody. But I think to, to get away from the noise, especially just the noise right now where, you know, there's some kind of a Twitter alert every 30 seconds and you can't really get immersed. I remember when I was a, a going into my sophomore year in college, Partially because my UVA girlfriend dumped me, who I went on to marry later on, uh, <laughs> drove drove to Alaska, lived in a tent all summer, and I had nothing. I had no distractions. All I could do was read. I had Brothers K. I had Crime and Punishment, and that was my only option. It was like twiddle my thumbs or read these books. And I I have never read so deeply in my life, you know. So I, I think it's really good, and it was deeply formative. It changed who I am in a way that had I been dialed into everything else going on. I had no idea what was going on the, in the world that summer. Not a clue, you know, and thankfully, you know, America didn't get attacked and I came back and my home was still standing and all that. But um, it was good to be unplugged for a bit. And I think that can be a blessing to young people to have that kind of luxury for a time. I also think it's this temptation to think that you have to be personally responsible for everything that's happening all the time, which is 
maybe a lie that we've been taught, right? And like the flip side is like, you want to be more engaged. But I also see the one thing, you know, you said it's a blessing for young people, but I do feel like it should be a blessing for all people. I was kind of like reflecting on this for this interview and thinking about how much I loved college and, you know, sitting and talking about books and things and thinking to, you know, out, you know, thankfully I started, we started this podcast, so I kind of get to do it in my, in my real life, but most people don't. Once you get the job, you kind of have to hit the grind and, and go, 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 go until you hopefully have enough money to retire, maybe, and then die. How do, how do normal people integrate this continuing classical education into their day-to-day life? Yeah, I think it takes a real discipline to do it. I don't think I'm a great example. I mean, one of the things I try to do, and I don't even always do that, is you know when I get on an airplane, which is a lot, I'm like, I'm not going to be plugged in. I'm just going to have a book here, and that tends to be one time. I think getting up early and saying, you know, before I plug in, I, I'm going to spend an hour. Maybe it's a devotion, or maybe it's also just some time to read like an actual physical book as well. I think that that's valuable. So yeah, it, I think it's increasingly hard. I mean, we just interviewed for our own podcast, Anchored, uh, the other day, Karen Swallow Pryor, who's been in the New York Times the past couple of days. And she was just talking about the difference, you know, during her own life, which she's, the, the change she's seen in students, how difficult it is to read for even three or four minutes, you know, without checking some kind of social update or something. Oh yeah, my brain is broken. Yeah. It's like I get really like, <laughs> down on myself when I start to read and, I'm, and I can't focus. It makes me so frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we should talk about, particularly for this podcast, the, the, the relationship of Catholicism, classical education, because I feel like they are often they're separate, but they are often in you know you know conjoining circles. Why are why are so many classical schools often attached to either a religious tradition more broadly, but specifically Catholicism? Do you think it's such a good question? I, you know, I think I've talked to a ton of Catholic heads of schools. Uh, that have kind of embraced, you know, the classical tradition, but they don't like that language at all. I think what they would just, what they say is, you know, we've more fully embraced the tradition of the church, you know, uh, and it really was the church. It was the, it was the, the monastics, you know, throughout the so-called dark ages or uh, that preserved uh, ancient learning. And so I think this has been part of the church and I love something. I'm a convert to Catholicism. And so this whole idea that all truth is God's truth whether it was something that that Plato or Aristotle or some other ancient identified uh, even before the revelation of Christ in the New Testament, that the church can uh, affirm truth wherever it may be spoken. You know, I think that that's that's really helpful. Yeah, and I think it's you know what drew me to Catholicism uh, as a Protestant was kind of the the timelessness of the church, uh, that everything seemed to be kind of constantly changing around me all the time. And Catholicism seemed to be anchored into a tradition that wasn't wasn't moving and also had this deep respect for those that came before us. And I think that that's really one of the ways that we could contrast kind of contemporary American culture from mostly any other culture on the planet uh, is the lack of kind of a deep reverence for previous generations, you know, that is such a big part of so many different cultures. And I think it's something that we can really learn from other cultures as well. You, you've mentioned before how you know civil rights leaders have have used these texts in their own in their own movements. Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, W. E. Du Bois. Um, I'm wondering if you see who's who's doing that today in a way that's really having an impact on 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 social justice movements. Yeah, I think what MLK was doing, and you see this especially in the, the numerous references to Aristotle in Letter from a Birmingham Jail, but I think King was also speaking to an audience that he knew was fluent and familiar with those kind of texts in a way that contemporary audiences are not. And so I'm not sure that it, it is going to make uh, the point. You know, I, I think probably a lot of thoughtful leaders, uh, you know, they learn uh, the art uh, of, of rhetoric and persuasive speech, and maybe they've had something from a classical formation from that. But yeah, I, I think it's it's generally been lost in terms of a, a popular uh, appeal to assuming that anybody has any kind of a broad knowledge of, of classical studies. Yeah. And what, what effect has that had? I mean, you, you described it as a loss. What are What are we missing? Yeah, I think common ground is is you know maybe the biggest loss right now. And and you think about you know America's founders were were so I mean they were 100 percent of them. And granted they were they were all white men, but 100 percent of them were uh, classically educated. You know, and so baked into the fabric uh, of the Constitution, uh, into the Declaration of Independence, into the Federalist Papers, uh, they had a deep understanding of every political system out there, the failures of those political systems, 
where they went wrong, how they understood human nature correctly. And that was based off of uh, a deep understanding of, of the classics. And so what happens when our all of our founders had a particular kind of education that was, again, instrumental into how we set up this whole experiment in government to where now we're pretty much totally removed from that, again, the kind of education that gave birth to America. So I, I honestly, and it may sound a bit extreme, but I, I think the number one reason that we've had the kind of civil discord that we have right now is fundamentally because of where education is at. Uh, a lack of common ground and even a basic lack of civic knowledge, you know. And so, some there's a lot of initiatives in states right now to try to add a civics test. I mean, the, the, the current dynamics are pretty dire. And so, NBC, mainstream media outlet, uh, in 2018, they released a study that they had done themselves on civic knowledge, and they discovered that two thirds of Americans uh, cannot pass a U.S. citizenship test. What they also discovered, though, is that the group that fails way more than any other group is the group with the most formal education. Uh, it was those that are in the 18 to 45-year-old age bracket that 81% of them cannot pass a citizenship test, whereas 65 and older, it was the exact opposite. They actually passed that 76% of them could pass a U.S. citizenship test. And, and again, part of this movement, and this has been a trajectory in education away from the classics. And so to just add a civics class, I don't think solves the problem because what it is, is it's this wholesale removal from the kind of education uh, I think that really did give birth to America uh, in the first place. So I think it's a sign of hope that we have a, a renaissance in the homeschool world and publicly funded charter schools that are embracing a classical tradition. And then I think a real renewal within the Catholic church and Catholic education uh, of schools also embracing a classical model there uh, as well. Maybe a couple more questions before we let you go. Um, are there any like ancient categories of thought or classical forms of analysis that people listening to this could start applying to their life as they read the news and you know try to live in this like tech saturated world that we all live in? You know, I, I really wish I was classically educated, and I'm definitely not. Uh, so I, I went to seminary to become a pastor and read my way into Catholicism there, and that was where I got a sense of wow, like other generations were educated in a really different way. And I've been educated. Uh, and that's where I got a sense of, well, they actually called that formation, like they were fundamentally doing a different thing. But my kids are getting classically educated, uh, which I sometimes don't like because they'll point out like the fallacies in my arguments and I'll, I'll resort to just saying, <laughs> I'm your dad, you know, take your little straw man argument or whatever and, and, and get your butt in bed right now. I don't want to hear any more about this. Uh, but they're like, that's an appeal to authority, dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, but you know, you you see the fruits of this kind of education. I think, especially in the young people uh, that have had it. So it may be a bit above my pay grade to to, to offer any kind of recommendations there. And look, you're you're a kid. Your brain uh, is a sponge. You know, I, I've learned since getting into this world that language acquisition, you know, it peaks at age seven. Um, and so there's this this beautiful side that we haven't talked about. Of you know, so these students are doing these classical schools. Many of them are doing are doing Latin, uh, the most useless in some ways of all things. Uh, but it's really interesting, the, the tangential kind of side effects of doing Latin. Uh, it tends to make students far more detail-oriented. Uh, it impacts you know, their patterns of thinking. Uh, it has a bigger impact on how they do on other uh, academic subjects in any other class that they will take, which is, is really beautiful. So we've talked about how this past year of the pandemic has kind of changed everything in education, which also creates opportunities for, for parents and students. I'm wondering if you have any any back to school advice as we enter this enter this year, whether whether, you know, the kid is in a normal public school or homeschooled. What, what can parents do? Yeah, that's a great question, Ashley. Uh, I think disengagement, you know, overall, you know, I, I love as a convert to Catholicism, the Catholic Church puts parents in kind of the driver's seat wherever you're at. It could be the public school or homeschool or Catholic school, uh, but the parents are the pri the first and primary educators uh, of their, their kiddos. And so I think to take the position of humility and to be learning with your kids is a lot of fun for them to actually do the hard work of trying to read at least some of what they're reading, whatever it may be, engaging with them on that. That's the number one thing that I would recommend, I think. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us a little bit about this. We do have one final question for you. Yeah. Uh, we ask all our guests, um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? G.K. Chesterton. There's no doubt. Don't have to think for half a second. Yeah, there's no thinker that has influenced my thinking half as much as Chesterton. I re I reread orthodoxy every single year of my life. 
Chesterton is just has just clarity. I think he has clarity on modernity, uh, even though he was writing a hundred years ago. That a lot of us don't have in terms of being able to kind of digest uh, what is right and wrong with their own time period. So, yeah, I'm hoping he gets it. I, I've heard it's not likely, but uh, I'm cheering for him for sure. He may have had a little bit too much bourbon, maybe a few too many cigars or something, but uh, <laughs> he he should get canonized in my opinion. What's a book you'd recommend someone start with? So there's two. So I, I do tremendous trifles a lot, but again, the one I go through every year is is orthodoxy. And so so Chesterton begins orthodoxy with kind of making an appeal to sanity uh, and the the lack of sanity uh, in the, the modern world, talking about health uh, and the way that that is returned to us the same way you see it returned to Nebuchadnezzar by looking up, looking to God as well. So that would be my my top recommendation. All right, awesome. Jeremy, thanks so much. Uh, anything you want to plug, point people to right now? You've got an article coming up in America that we're going to link to in the show notes, so we'll definitely send people there. But anything else? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, no, Zach, Ashley, this has been a delight. Uh, our website is cltexam.com. Definitely check us out. Students can take an alternative to the SAT, ACT from the comfort of their home, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and then our podcast uh, is the Anchor Podcast, which comes out twice a week. So thank you both. This has been a, a delight. Awesome. Thanks so much, great. Jeremy. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So we just want to bring to people's attention. America's publishing its October 2021 issue. Uh, it's a special edition on women in the church. You know, this is a thing that comes up uh, pretty frequently for us. Um, but a really beautiful set of articles on um, written, you know, mostly by women on some really interesting issues, particularly uh, uh, women in healthcare women leading in the Vatican. That's actually, that's a great cover story. Yeah. From our friend Colleen Dully of Inside the Vatican. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be bringing her on the show to talk about that. You know, Pope Francis has made a lot of sort of groundbreaking moves appointing women in leadership roles in the Vatican. We also uh, reopened the debate about gender and the priesthood. So we got a couple of competing views on that and some more coming online. Yeah. So if that is something that you that comes up in your day-to-day conversations about being Catholic, you're definitely going to want to check this out. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes, um, but you can find all of it at americamagazine.org. All right, Zach. I'm not, I, I can't say my regular line. Yeah. It is not time for consolations and desolations. <gasps> I know. Just, just wait though. Hear us out. Okay. What is it time for? It is time for as one friend speaks to another. Yes. So here's, look, we, we got to level with you. One of the things when we looked at, you know, the show this summer, you know, where we were putting our energy, where some things we wanted to tweak, it was brought to us by our producers that maybe this was a pain point. And this as in consolations yes. and desolations. Right. So it was the part of the show where we we took some time before the show to look at look at our past week and try to find where where God was working in our lives that week or or where God wasn't working, where the evil spirit was at work and, you know, bringing us down, turning us away from God. And it was it was really, you know, that's a very Jesuit way of, you know, engaging in spiritual reflection, um, finding God in all things and and looking for the the lights and shadows in in our lives. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like this past year has been pretty weird, right? Um, and so trying to find things that fit sort of clearly into a consolation or a desolation became pretty difficult. Yeah. And I would say we we really did discern this in, in the way that we, <laughs> it felt like doing a consolation and desolation conversation as we were talking about this, because there were there, were, there was fear of like, can we change? Change is scary. Will people stop listening to us if we do this? We tweak anyone, any part of the show. Yeah. But I also like I felt pretty, pretty deeply that like I was I was afraid that I in in trying to fit this format, I was not always being like my most authentic self because I felt like I would have to like find something that was not only like happening in my life, but worked for an audience and was interesting. And yeah, like you said, it's been a weird year and I haven't been doing that not much. A lot, not a lot of interesting stuff has happened. I'll be honest with you. Um, and so, you know, we played with it, but we did want to like 
make the show, you know, com- distinctly Jesuit and distinctly like we did want to have the spiritual element because we, we do think that kind of, I don't know, is a unique thing that we don't want to lose. And it's super, I, I mean, as hard as it was some week, it was ac- it was really helpful for my prayer life. So we molded over. We talked with Father Eric about it. Um, we, and we kind of came to this idea of uh, trying to bring about some type of faith sharing, um, a conversation between friends. And so where the, the name of this, uh, as one friend speaks to another, comes from, uh, it's from the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. It's in his instructions about, uh, oftentimes the word you'll hear in Jesuit circles is a, a colloquy, like to make a co- colloquy, which is explained in most rudimentary terms. It's like, look, just have a conversation with God, right? Like as you would, as one friend would speak to another. It's not super revolutionary, Um, but it's really difficult. So that's what we're going to try to do with the segment on a week-to-week basis. Um, We're going to try to do just some face sharing, you know, bring something that we saw or that we read um, or that's happened to us. And we're going to try to talk about it a little bit more. Oftentimes, you know, Consolations and Desolations, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, was, you know, I would try to say my piece and then Ashley would try to say her piece. And we would kind of resist like interjecting as, as much as possible because, you know, you want someone to be able to say their thing and be honest about it and not have to respond. But we're going to try the dialogue thing a little bit more. This was the first attempt at that. So talking about the fear of change and changing a segment on the show and, you know, what is it? What was what was Eric's line about? Or no, this was Sebastian. Yeah, this is our uh, producer, Sebastian Gums. Yeah. Spiritual director told him one time, uh, pray as you can, not as you can't. You know, it also, I think this opens up the opportunity for people to, you know, send us stuff and talk about that, which I'm really excited about. So if, you know, you've got ideas or reactions to this or um, if you've got something that you think would be worth unpacking in a spiritual way, like definitely send that in to us uh, via email. We, we'll, we'll list that in our show notes and everything. It's jesuiticalamericanmedia.org. But we're, we're excited to, you know, go on this new adventure. And we, all, we also hope that you uh, bear with us as we go through some growing pains. It's not always going to be as polished as, we, as we'd like. But we're, I think we're excited. All right. Should I get us out of here? Get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.